Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Adventure of Prayer. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, How is Prayer Possible? I know, I know, everyone prays. I remember when prayer was removed from public school classrooms. I know those of you who are younger might marvel at that. I mean, you mean that prayer was a formal part of public school classrooms in this country? Well, yeah, it was. And then came the day when prayer was taken away from the curriculum. But when it was, a great many people said, well, you know, as long as there are exams in schools, there are always going to be prayers in schools. Well, yeah, indeed, people pray, especially when they're desperate. You know, it's been said that soldiers pray when they're in a firefight. Parents pray when one of their kids is diagnosed with cancer. Uh, People pray not only when they're desperate, but they also pray when they're thankful. It's just this. When we're overwhelmed with gratefulness, I mean, we need to thank someone. It just feels necessary. I would say that people pray because they're created in the image of God. They worship because even if they reject the one true God, the impulse to worship something greater than themselves, I mean, something to which they must pour out their praise, well, that's an impulse that they simply can't shut down. So if my message today is entitled, How is Prayer Possible? That is, how is it possible at all? Well, oh, you might respond by saying, isn't that the wrong question? Really, shouldn't we be saying, that no matter how much you repress the knowledge of God somewhere out of your human soul, prayers will simply leak out because your soul demands you pray. That's true. To be in God's image means that we've been created for relationship with our Creator. And this impulse, even though it's you know deeply twisted and distorted by sin, yet the impulse will remain. People will always pray simply because they're people, they're human. And as I've already said, prayer is communication with God. And yet, if it is that, we need to ask, are we getting through? See, and I have an illustration about this, and I hope you won't think badly of me when I tell you what I did. But here's what happened. Now, I had a young man in my church who was extremely troubled. He was a very big and imposing man, and he was also extremely aggressive, and he was threatening. I don't know why he came to church, but the day he first saw me, he disliked me. He would frequently accost me after the service, and it was very difficult to get away from him. I don't know what motivated him, but he seemed to have a mission, and that was to make my life as miserable as possible. I found it impossible to get away from him, and he was constantly accusing me of some things that were, I just, they were outrageous. So what was I to do? And I I didn't know. One day he called me just to tell me off. You know, I listened for a while, and then I quietly put the phone down on my desk, and I went for a cup of coffee as he went on and on. And I came back into my office about a half an hour later, and I, and I picked the phone from my desk, and yeah, he was still talking, and he, he was reveling in the fact that he was telling me off. And he hadn't noticed that while he was really making his point, there was actually no one on the other side that was listening. He was, he was simply talking to himself. I know, you're probably shocked that I would do that, and you probably now think that you're going to write me a letter about it. You might even phone me to tell me off for such callous behavior. Uh, But just while you're phoning, check whether or not I'm at the other end really listening. Now you know what I'm capable of. And here's the question. 
When people pray, is God there? I ask that as a most serious question because Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And that's the real issue. How shall what is unholy enter into the presence of holiness? Let's use an easy example. Let's say you walk up to the White House and demand to see the president. Of course, you won't be ushered into the Oval Office to take about a half an hour of his time. So think about it. God is infinitely greater than the president. How shall we make an appointment with him? And since our rebellion against our creator is also under consideration here, how do we ever get an invitation to enter his presence? Wouldn't it be a fool's errand to get on our knees or to simply whisper out words of help when we're in trouble? What makes you think there's someone listening on the other end of the line? Isaiah 59 says that because of our sins, God has hidden his face from us. I wonder if it surprises some of my listeners to think that their conversation with God might well be no more than that aggressive young man shouting into his phone at me while I was in the other room enjoying a delicious cup of coffee. I mean, what makes us think that God should snap to attention when we pray? And the point that I'm making is that God has not promised to hear the prayers of sinners. Isaiah 1 verse 15 says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Or listen to James 4 verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is, you might be praying to a God who is determined to oppose you at every step. Or Proverbs 21 verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. It's true that God is gracious, and it's also true that notwithstanding all of our sins, God will many times bless the lives of unbelievers. But the point I make is a biblical one. God has not promised to answer any prayer of a single unbeliever. He made no covenant with those who have rejected him. If he does hear their prayers and answer, he does so unexpectedly and out of his mercy, but he has not committed himself to do so. We may well be talking into an empty phone because God is determined not to pick up the receiver. Just because you pray doesn't mean God is listening. Now, that, by the way, is one reason that there are atheists. It's not that God isn't there. It's that God has hidden his presence from them, and he's determined that they will not find him. He's not easily accessed. You know, the book of Leviticus demonstrates that principle quite well. The Old Testament tabernacle, and then later, of course, the temple, it contained a room that was called the Holy of Holies. It was a representation of the presence of God. But day after day and week after week, the room remained empty. No one was allowed to enter. No one received an invitation to go there. And more so, it was said that if anyone was presumptuous enough to try to enter, God would strike them dead on the spot. And God was demonstrating that he had barred the way into his presence. Leviticus chapter 16 tells us that there was one day of the year and only one when the high priest of Israel was allowed to enter God's presence. But even then, the high priest entered with trembling. God would appear in a cloud over the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest would enter with a bowl of blood, sprinkling blood on the mercy seat and confessing his own sin and then the sins of his people. Atonement had to be offered. Blood had to be spilt. 
God was showing that it was very expensive to enter into his presence. And if the high priest did not enter in the way in which God had designated that he should enter, he himself would die. In this way, all Israel would learn, you don't trifle with God. You don't presume on God. You don't approach God on your terms or on your timetable. He's holy. He's to be feared. His wrath might burst out against you in a moment. You might know that you need God, but you also need to know about your sins and why it is that your sins have barred you from a pathway to him. So if prayer is communication with God, how in the world is prayer possible at all? And it is to this very question that a great part of the New Testament gives a glorious answer. You know, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So what's a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. I mean, think of it this way. In labor negotiations, let's say between the union and management, the dispute is sometimes so deep and severe that it becomes impossible for both sides to come to a settlement. Both sides mistrust each other and no middle ground can be found. And so in those times, the government may decide to put a mediator in place. That mediator will meet with both sides. And in the case of binding arbitration, that mediator will impose a settlement on both sides. Now, this is, of course, a very imperfect example of what I'm talking about, but it gets close enough to the issue before us. Isaiah 59 verse 2 reminds us that God is determined not to hear the prayer of sinners. They might cry to him in their time of need, but he will not hear. Sin has separated us from God. His face is set against us. No ground can be found upon which he might turn to us in mercy. And so we're in trouble. And the real question then is this, is there anyone who might mediate for us before God? And the answer that comes from the gospel of Jesus is this. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. The Father has found his only Son as an acceptable mediator. That is the marvelous and wonderful beginning of the adventure in prayer. Every single week, we hear stories of listeners drawing closer to the Lord through the teaching of Back to the Bible Canada. Hearing your testimony reminds us that God's Word does not return empty, but makes an impact. Heidi wrote, Your show was sometimes the one constant that provided an anchor in an otherwise upside-down world. Your ministry reaches further than I think you realize. If you have a story to share of how Back to the Bible Canada has helped impact your spiritual walk, please let us know that we're hitting the mark. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, please consider how you might support this ongoing Bible teaching ministry with your financial support. It would mean so much. You know, we're creatures who might be angry with God. That's not a fight we're going to win. You know, we get older, we get afflicted with disease, and death awaits us. If God is unmoved, we're utterly ruined. This fight between God and us ends in only one way, and Job knew this. 
You know, in Job 9, verses 2 to 3, he says, How can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And then in verse 33, he says, There is no arbitrator between us who might lay a hand on us both. That's it. Job didn't know of a mediator, but he knew he needed one. But in the fullness of time, that's exactly what Jesus became for us. Listen to Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You know, Hebrews tells us that Jesus performed the role of the high priest. He has entered into the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling place of the Father, and he has presented his own blood as an atonement for our sins. And then having made that point, Hebrews 9 verse 15 adds this glorious thought. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That is, Jesus is the mediator. His blood opens the door to the Holy of Holies and invites us through his mediatorial work to enter the holy place. Hebrews 10 verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, we're invited into the Oval Office. No, no, much greater, of course, infinitely greater. We are, in Christ our mediator, invited into the throne room of God to come near to the great God himself. And that means that no one has the right to enter unless they're ushered into the throne room through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the one who is our mediator. Outside of him, prayer is not possible. That's why all believers don't just pray. We pray the only way we know it is possible to pray. We pray in the name of Jesus. See, I want to think about that phrase, in Jesus' name. John, in John's gospel, records what Jesus said about it. John 14, 13 to 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Or John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then again, John 16, 23 to 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now here, all of us who are Christians, you know, we've, we've heard countless prayers that end with the words, in Jesus' name. Listen, we don't use those words as a kind of a magical abracadabra. It's not a formula that opens a door. It's not, it's not a magic talisman that unleashes strange powers. You know, we've all seen magicians with a wand in their hand and they tap a box and then they say certain words and poof, you know, a rabbit comes out of the box where there had not been one before. See, if that's what we think of the words in the name of Jesus, well, I fear we're sadly disappointed because a great many people actually do think that way. I mean, they might wear a religious symbol, maybe even cross themselves at a certain point in time and thinking that once that action is done, that's the formula to get what they want in prayer. That's not what Jesus taught when he told us to ask the Father in his name. Let's go to a biblical example that will help us understand. Acts chapter 3 records the account of Peter healing a lame man. 
This man had been begging at the temple courts for some time, and and Peter and John are passing by, and and the man begs. So Acts 3, 6-7 says, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And then one chapter later, this miracle caused quite a stir. You know, the religious leaders are upset and they demand that Peter and John explain what has occurred. And Peter responds, and here I'm reading Acts 4, verses 9 to 10. If we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so if you want a clear explanation what's meant by the phrase, in the name of Jesus, well, clearly here what's meant is that this action had been authorized by Jesus. It was done in his name, and it means that it was done under his authorization. And by the way, I know I'm in danger of getting off track here, but but bear with me because I think it helps. Some of you are aware that there are those people who insist that baptism must be in the name of Jesus and not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me explain the controversy if you haven't heard of it before. You know, in Matthew 28, Jesus tells his followers to go into all the world and then to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then when we go to the book of Acts, we find that when baptism is done and described there, it was done in the name of Jesus. And that has led some false teachers to argue that there is no Trinity, but that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the same time. So, you know, according to them, there are no three persons who are the one God. Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's been called the Jesus-only movement. You know, but of course, they have an error. And what we've now come to understand is the idea that the formula in the name of Jesus means having been authorized by Jesus. See, the early church baptized people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exactly as Jesus had told them to do. But how in the world can they do that? What I mean is this. When they baptized people, they pronounced their sins to have been forgiven. They pronounced them reconciled to God. They claim that these people have been brought into the people of God. So how in the world can you say such outrageous things? By whose authority do you make such statements? And the answer, they baptized them in the name of Jesus. That is, they baptized people into the triune God on the authority that had been given to them by Jesus himself. So they baptized people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the authority that had been granted to them by Jesus. And that's why it says they were baptized in the name of Jesus. They were baptized according to his authority. And that's the point. Wherever we find the phrase in the name of Jesus, it means that Jesus has given authority to do a certain thing. So let's bring that back to the matter of our prayers. I want you to imagine right now the initial prayer of faith. Lord, praise the sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm undeserving of mercy, but I come to you seeking mercy. And I'm hopeful because I've been told that Jesus died for my sins. And so in the name of Jesus, that is, coming to you now, Father, having been authorized by Jesus himself to come into your presence, 
I come confessing my sins and pleading with you for mercy. Make me a child of God. Well, does God hear that prayer? Yeah, he does. For we have a promise that's found in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is, the Father acknowledges that the Son has the authority to forgive sins. So let's go back to our illustration of going to the door of the White House and assuming that we can get in if we can just get close enough to the Oval Office and knock on the door. Well, you know it's laughable. That can't happen. But now let's assume that a high-ranking member of the White House were to say to you, let me take you in to see the president. And then even though you wouldn't be able to go, yet he has the authority to usher you into his presence. And that's what makes prayer possible. The way to God has indeed been shut because of our sin and because of the awful holiness of a great God. There's a thick curtain over the Holy of Holies, and there was a a threat of death should we ever attempt to enter into God's presence. But now Jesus, our great high priest, has been given all authority, not just on earth, but all authority in heaven. And he is beckoning us, come with me, and I will boldly bring you before my Father. And then in my name and under the authority that I have given you, make your request known. And you will find that the Father is more than willing to respond to every prayer that is made in Jesus' name. Okay, I'm doing my Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep prayers, and all of a sudden I'm overwhelmed by the idea that, what really, is, is Jesus actually listening to what I'm saying right now? Yeah. And you're not the first person to have thought that. We've all thought it. In fact, David thought it, didn't he? I mean, Psalm 8 Uh, When I, you know, consider the work of your hands, he's looking at the stars and everything that God has made. What is a man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I mean, how is it that I should even consider it a possibility that the maker of heaven and earth would invite me into his presence and pour out my soul and he would answer me? But that is the, the wonderful thing that we have in Christ. So we can be overwhelmed. We can think those thoughts, and they are good thoughts to think. And then we need to remember the promise that God has made in Christ and then be overwhelmed even further. How wonderful. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, The Adventure of Prayer, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Legacy can traditionally be defined as something that is passed on to entrusted hands, but it can be so much more your faith, your character, your core values, or the life you lead. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and you want it to continue and have an eternal impact on future generations, then you may wish to consider making a legacy donation. Advisors with Purpose is an independent Canadian financial ministry that Back to the Bible Canada partners with to help supporters create a plan for their estate according to their faith and values. Our partnership allows Back to the Bible Canada to offer an estate service through Advisors with Purpose for free. If you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose today at 1-866-336-3315. And to donate to the ministry today, visit us at backtothebible.ca.
www.cnn.ca.